trying to be a thoughtful, reasonable, fair-minded, logical person. Whatever went on, and this is my best bet right now, and I think there's powerful evidence for it, the event of the nun's death took place in the apartment. The body was then moved to the first of several junkyard or garbage dumps until it somehow ended up as in Lansdowne at the garbage dump there. And then there's this strange story of, in Arbutus, I think it was, the local precinct for the Baltimore County Police. The head guy there gets a call, and the caller says, I'm concerned, I'm a hunter, and I'm up here, and we just came, me and my son are hunting, and this woman's body in the Lansdowne garbage dump. You know who takes that call? You know who answers that call and says, boys, we got to run over there right now to the Lansdowne garbage dump because there's a problem over there. we got a dead woman over there. That is Officer Spinell. Put all of that together, and then the guy making the call to explain why there's this body, which has floated around for about two months in the most bizarre set of circumstances. Here, my knowledge ends. Why they felt they had to keep that body available at all times. The best explanation is crazy as hell, but you hear often, I've heard in my travels, well, Maskell was using it frequently to terrify other people. He would show them the body and then he would say, you like this? You want that to happen to you? Bad things happen to people who talk out of turn. Got it? And yet it still doesn't add up for me. Why, if they were in command of the body from the beginning, do they have this sudden need to make the body appear so that Canell calls in and says, I got a body over here, you better come on. And he calls Romer and his homicide squad. Romer told me, we're sitting in the damn squad bay on Friday morning. I'm sorry, in the, on the morning in January when the body is found. What's that? You've got a body on her. And what does she look like? Oh, my God. Boys, jump in the cruiser. Here we go. And he told me point blank. I walked in there and there was a dead woman lying on a, in the garbage dump. And it was her purse lying a few feet from her left foot. I looked in there and I saw a prescription bottle on it. said, Sister Kathy, so says next. And he told me, and I cried out loud, hello, Sister Kathy. We found her at last. If you put all of that together, this idea that she was driving home from the shopping center and some maniac on the street pulled her over, jumped in her car, took her somewhere near Lansdowne in the junk yard there, raped her, and then knew what he'd done. Oh, my God, it's a capital crime. Killed her, dumped the body there, then drove her car back to her parking lot, left it there, and then ran home or took a bus home and so on. Ludicrous is the only word I have. Ludicrous. Now, combine that with what we talked about at the start of our discussion tonight. FBI first tells me, we never worked on it. We don't have a single piece of paper. Go talk to Anne Arundel County. Then later they tell us, uh, actually, we did work on it. Sorry, it slipped my mind. But we do have 6,000 pages. And we've also gone back now four times and drilled everybody over and over again on what it all is. Put that together with the sequence of events that I think I have accurately laid out for you. And you'll see why I believe there's, there's, it's ludicrous. There can be no chance that she was abducted by a crazed PCP freak on the streets of the of Baltimore. I have some interesting information that we've yeah. not shared publicly yet. All right, so prepare yourself. Are you ready? 
I'm sitting on the couch here, gripping the cushion. Go ahead. We have obtained the city's missing persons report for Kathy. Uh-huh. On the report, it has all of the times that things were happening, which is going to be very surprising. And this is what it says. This is some of the things that it tells us. We know that Kathy left her apartment at 7.30 p.m., which also matches with the time that Sharon Bush tells us that she believed that Kathy left her apartment. Something very interesting is the police documented, after interviewing people in the neighborhood, that Kathy's car was seen by neighbors parked at that position by 10.30 p.m. Now, that was independently written in this report by several neighbors. They asked them, hey, did you see this car out there? People were like, yeah. And so it seemed, as a collective, the car was there, parked where it was found at 10.30 p.m. While I was at the carriage house apartment over the summer, I was able to see the corner Kathy's car was found at, which was on Lantern Court. To clear up a common misunderstanding, the car was not sticking out into North Bend Road. Back in 1969, the entrance to the apartments from North Bend Road was still usable, allowing for someone to park on North Bend, walk up the old concrete walkway, and enter directly next to Kathy and Russell's door. Standing outside their apartment door, Kathy's car would not have been visible nor did they have windows in their apartment that could have seen it. However, anyone walking out of the now-blocked entrance would have had a direct view of Kathy's car. Lantern Court is directly across from the entrance to the parking lot Kathy used. Anyone standing or parked at the beginning of the parking lot, which is where Kathy's parking spot was, would also have a view of Kathy's car on Lantern Court. Today, there is only one entrance into this parking lot, which is from North Bend Road. However, back in 1969, I'm told there was another entrance from a smaller street called Boswell Road. According to the missing persons report, Kathy's car was spotted at the corner of Lantern Court as early as 10.30 p.m. The question still stands. If these neighbors are correct, and the car was there at 10.30. Why did no one see the car till several hours later? For a long time, I will admit, that I questioned why Russell, Pete, and Jerry wouldn't go looking for Kathy. Maybe her car broke down. Maybe she wrecked and her car was in a ditch. Why weren't they looking for her? Tom's opinion seems to be that they knew where she was, which is why they weren't looking. I have to caution you, however, not everyone reacts the same in these situations. No one ever thinks that this would happen to them or someone that they know, that they disappear and never return home. I want you to imagine for a moment what you might do if suddenly you were thrown into the same scenario, but recognize that we all react differently. The police did not see the car when they arrived to do the missing persons report. The report tells us that two officers came to the scene after they were called at 11.35 p.m. 
is when the police were called, according to this report. So when the police arrive, they also do not see Kathy's car. If the neighbors are correct that it's there by 1030 and many, this is not just one or two. This is several neighbors are saying that they saw the car there at 1030. The police leave and you're correct. When Sharon says she returns the next morning, Pete and Coob are still at the apartment. So they must have stayed there overnight. We also learned that Pete found Kathy's car at three o'clock a.m. and The report also does reflect what you just mentioned, how he opened it and they looked into it. We know that there was mud on the tires of the car and there was that really weird grass that was found in the car on the steering knob, uh, which is very weird because if you look at that model of car, I don't really see how that could have gotten there. So this report tells us a lot of things. Because a lot of people are not seeing Kathy's car when many of the neighbors are saying it was there at 1030. If your theory is correct, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that would mean the sister Russell would have known what was happening because she said she was at the apartment the entire time. Just to be the devil's advocate, maybe she did know and she was scared to death and went along with it because she was scared. Who knows? However. If you're correct in your theory that they are coming up with a game plan of how to make this work, then that also falls in line with the time that Sharon says she gets a phone call from Russell asking her if she saw Kathy. Uh, Sharon says her phone call was around 10 o'clock p.m. About an hour and a half later is when they end up calling the detectives to report her missing. So if your theory is correct, just to be the devil's advocate here to discuss this theory of yours, I could see someone calling Sharon to set up this preconceived idea that Kathy never returned home and they're not sure where she's at. Yes, Shane, and let me jump in, please, for just a moment. Let's not forget, it may only be an intuitive flash on my part and meaningless, but I was deeply struck when I came upon, I think it was an article in the last few years in the Baltimore Sun, and it reported that the last public, in the last public living statement by Sister Russell, she said, I don't know why it was there, the car, but I'll tell you this. Whoever put that car there wanted it to be found. To be clear, I personally do not believe that Russell was involved in covering up Kathy's disappearance. According to those who knew Russell, she seemed to not have been the kind of person who would go along with it and never come forward. By all accounts, her and Kathy were the closest of friends. Also, if Russell, Jerry, and Pete were all three involved in covering up what happened to Kathy. Find it highly unlikely, because with time, people start to talk. The more people involved, the less likely the secret will stay a secret. There is no physical evidence that would show that Kathy was killed in the apartment, nor was there evidence reported 
of a struggle. In Tom's opinion, Russell, Jerry, and Pete were only involved in allowing the cover-up to happen out of fear. Why would they keep it a secret for so long? The missing persons report is very detailed about this. It talks about how the letter is picked up, how they received it in their possession, that it was not open when they received it. Here I am referring to the letter that Kathy's sister received in the mail from Kathy after Kathy disappeared. Oddly enough, it does not say what is on the letter. To clarify, the report only calls it a letter once. All other mentions refers to it as the envelope. And they also go into detail about how they tried to find what day and time Kathy mails the letter. So they're able to do a little investigation into when the letter was sent out. And this is interesting. They believe that Kathy sent the letter either the day before she goes missing, but more likely she sends the letter the day she goes missing. It seems that earlier in the day is when she sends the letter out to her sister. And she actually, she doesn't send it from the apartment. She drops it into one of the post office mailbox unit thing, the, the big blue thing, which is very interesting. She sends a letter, not a card, to her sister. These detectives talk about how it's picked up and how it's entered into evidence. But at no point in time in the missing persons report does it talk about what is on the letter, which is very odd. That stuck out like a sore thumb to me. When, we're, when we talk about Jerry Coob and all of those details behind it, how well do you feel like Jerry Coob? Hardly at all. We had two interviews. The second one was very long, and the first one he asked to wait a few days so he could prepare. So that was a short discussion. But I think we talked two hours on the phone on the day of the actual interview, to be honest. And maybe it's not entirely to my credit. I thought, I think I might have allowed some of my feelings over time about the Jesuits to creep in. I'm a great fan of Jesuits who help the poor, and many do, or Jesuits who have gone to Latin America and fought for the peasants, and many do. But as the Jesuit order for centuries was also the team of assassins that worked for the Pope and took care of political rivals, and they were the most often described as super intelligent and among the craftiest and most unprincipled of players in the Catholic Church for several centuries, they have a mixed reputation, to say the very least. I hope I live to see some sort of revelation that really does. Uh, it can't be anything more than I dream of a press conference where the prosecutor of Baltimore County, if some of these folks like Maskell and Magnus were alive, we would be taking what we have now to the grand jury and seeking their indictment or either accessory to murder or murder outright. And though we cannot prosecute them now, we can at least clear the record, give a little bit of closure to people, and let them know that we care about this enough to have invested the time and energy and all of this work. And so we can't go to the grand jury, but by golly, if it was possible, 
we know enough that we would. I don't think it's going to happen because, frankly and personally, I think the link here to very high political figures in Baltimore and in Maryland, this is the era of Agno. She dies in 69. I was watching television on the afternoon in October of 1973 when Spiru Ted Agno, former governor and as then Nixon's vice president, stepped in front of the cameras and pled no low contendere on a reduced, obviously bargained tax evasion charge and was allowed to walk with probation after that. I think it was actually pardoned, wasn't he, by Nixon? I think that's what it was. He's pardoned. He walked, and who was he? He was Ted Agnew of Maryland. And if I started reading you the list of Maryland politicians who've done time in the prison for corruption, we'd be here all night. And it was out of that. This is 1973. She dies in 69. How likely is it that if all of this is the way we say it was, that they wouldn't have covered it up? I think that's a no-brainer. And so we're left, uh, and I admit to a personal stake in this, I'm, I think it's okay. I've had a good life and enjoyed my wonderful daughters and grandkids, and I'm a happy man. I mean that from the heart. But I also know I walked out of that job and a livelihood, and we struggled and sweated for years to pay the bills because I didn't have a regular paycheck. But I told them then, I am not going to be part of this. What the political machine is doing, you know how corrupt the gangsters are in this town. And people are dying every other night in the ghetto and elsewhere in Baltimore over this. Maybe you can do it to go home and go pop the top on a can of beer and watch the NBA playoffs, secure in your paycheck and your pension. I ain't doing it. And I didn't do it. And I'm still here. And I'm glad that's the way it worked out. Thank you for letting me vent a little bit. <laughs> a detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? As we deep dive into these chilling tales, We all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where Recess Mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, Recess Mood is your guilt-free retreat with just 20 calories, no added sugar. It's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of Foul Play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon, letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. 
you deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. If you could further explore any part of this entire story with more time and resources, what specific detail would you further explore? How I wish I could, if I could do what I wanted, and if it reached the level of priority, I, I have grandkids, I have other responsibilities like you do. But if, if, let's go to dreamland for a minute. I think the first thing I would do is begin to develop contact, go drink some beer with cops, go talk to prosecutors, try to make some friends. Let's go on down to Nellie's Bar and Grill and have a couple and gradually look for the missing link for the police individual that I could get to trust me enough who could say, those of us in homicide, we've known for 40 years what the hell the deal is. Here's the deal. Went down, bang, and that's it. You never, you promised now you're never going to quote me and so on. That would be a major way, I think, to approach this. I think it would also be, but it's an immense amount of burning shoe leather. This is huge, but if I could, I would go back to Theo to the people of that day, the ones that are left, most of the teachers are gone. I don't know the exact numbers, but I assume a significant percentage of the former teachers there are dead. But there's probably some teachers left. And my guess is everybody who was on the teaching staff and the nuns and all of them had to know what was going on. It might have been the kind of knowledge where you don't dare speak of it and it's always simmering beneath the surface, but you know what it is. You've heard one of the girls crying in the bathroom, and you go in, what's wrong, dear? And she cries out hysterically what happened and so forth. And then you hide that knowledge, and you keep trying to work there and so on and so forth. Uh, That would be another line of inquiry is to try to cultivate former students and, above all, teachers in the hope of doing that. We know that Marilyn, her sister, is still alive, isn't she? Am I correct? Do you know? Yes, she is. Okay. I went to Pittsburgh once but I didn't have resources or time to go back. But to go back and try to become her friend and live with all of that and gradually puzzle out of what she's saying could be very significant. Those are possible steps to take. And I think you could also make some headway if you had the time and energy in studying the public written record. I remember the surprise I found when I found an old, article in the sun in which the police beat reporter had asked brother pete tell me what happened that night the sequence of events and he was up in my monastery up in beltville now let me be careful here i think that's probably it's pretty close to an hour-long drive from annapolis beltville is could be shorter slightly shorter than that it's a suburb of north of washington dc and again the police reporter could have somehow misunderstood doesn't seem very Likely, how do you get that wrong? One thing to transpose two numbers. Yeah, you lived at 2244, and in your haste, you got the numbers wrong, and you got 2424 instead of 2244. But how do you get wrong? I was in my monastery up in Beltsville, and I got a call from Father Coob, and he told me that he was worried that the nun had 
come on, how do you, that's not possible. So there's a, I found that just by tirelessly combing through every story written in the Washington Post on elsewhere over all these years. And you find little nuggets that way, and then that nugget takes you to the next thing and the next thing. But there's one other possible. Finding old, I never forgot interviewing off the record a former attorney general of the state of Maryland and sitting in his living room. He had been the attorney general during part of the period I mentioned. He said, oh, shit, yeah, Tom, everybody knows they were burning buildings. Come on. Were you born yesterday? It's common knowledge. Come on. This is an attorney general of Maryland confirming what I was saying earlier tonight about the corrupt machine that engaged in arson and all the rest of it. That, that interview was immensely helpful in learning about it, not in getting stories about it published, necessarily but and you do that by the way i work and i think most investigative reporters try to work is you get rejected 10 times in a row often with fear and even outright just we don't have time for this we're trying to work on 9-11 i'm busy that's 50 years ago thank you can someone walk you back to your car and a lot of that but every once in a while you, you reach that person who's still got a shred of integrity and cares about it and now you slowly nurture that relationship. That would be the approach that, that I would take. Last thing, there may be some nuggets, there may be golden nuggets still in the public record that nobody's managed to find yet. Autopsy stuff. The thing you found is terrific. The, the report that night on the calls, missing person call that came in. All of those things. Some of it, though, is luck. I don't despair. Here's why. The keepers did a great job in many ways of bringing everybody's attention to this. You're doing a job the same way. I read the other day that 15 different attorneys general are now digging into subpoenaed personnel records and that a number of priests, perhaps as many as 10, are now sitting in jail cells as I speak to you in the states where attorneys generals are investigating this abuse over time. So what we've been able to do is not only worth doing, Professionally, I think, personally speaking, by far the most rewarding and significant journalistic activity I was involved in, with the possible exception of living a year in the coal fields of West Virginia, as I told you, and writing about in my book, Death at Buffalo Creek, the death of 120 people and the destruction of an entire valley because of illegal and irresponsible mining practices that allowed a, a huge coal-washing impound to explode in the 1970s and kill six, wipe out 16 towns. That was certainly a huge thing to work on over a very long period of time. But I have four daughters, and uh, now I have five granddaughters. And if the mark I can put on my tombstone is he tried to help, he loved his kids, that's okay. I'm a happy man. I just have a few more things that I want to bring up. I learned today, and I just wanted to, to mention it. I had this random thought before I jumped onto this call with you that EO was a private school. So people who attended, the students, their parents had to pay tuition. And so I asked around to find out how much that tuition was and how much that would be in today's dollars. And I realized that 
the survivors, all these survivors that went to Kyo, their parents paid about twelve thousand dollars in today's money. Yeah, for their kids to go through what they had to go through, which is crazy right. in my mind. Just to think about that, people had to go through what they did, whether their parents had to pay the very establishment that allowed that abuse to go on and, and to happen to, and to create that atmosphere. That was like mind boggling. And I just wanted to share that really quick. I can add a note. One of the things I've studied over time, I went to a boys Catholic high school myself in the Washington DC area. The current tuition there is $18,000 a year. And they make a lot of noise about, Oh, scholarships and we're giving and trusting. And it's, not really that way. But if you multiply the thousand students they have times the thousand dollar tuition, I can't, I failed high school algebra, I'm sorry. But we're talking in the low millions. And I've done a little digging enough to know that the network of Catholic schools and universities in this great nation of ours has hidden enormous amounts of wealth. I'm willing to bet you a in a beer sometime, that if we truly understood the level of wealth that historically and today that these that the church and these centers of learning, these wonderful Catholic high schools and so on and so forth, if we know the full range of, remember, they have constant round-the-clock feverish fundraising all the time. All they do, I know this for a fact, I'll spare you the details, I know it. They go and they come to work at nine in the morning in the fundraising office of a Catholic high school. And the first call is to IBM and can't you help the kids? Can't you? We got kids we're trying to help. They don't have enough money and we can give you $30,000. I wish we had more, but we'll give you that. And then they call the next corporation and the next one and they do it relentlessly all day long. At the end of the day, they pile up sums of money from well intentioned, thoughtful people who want to help. And then they hide it in a variety of mechanisms that we do not dream about. I would not be at all surprised to learn that the system of Catholic education, along with the church, is fabulously wealthy beyond our knowledge as I speak to you now. So in that mode, I hope I'm not running off too much here, but I'm, I'm just obviously I'm disillusioned by all of it. I'll just say it in one sentence. The world I thought was real as a kid and a young man and a college kid and then making my way in life is not the world that we actually live in. I have just a couple more points I want to add really quick, Tom. Sorry. Right. There was a new article that came out earlier this year and it was talking about how it was uncovered how much money the Catholic Church has spilt in to the northeastern U.S. in the last 80 80- the last eight years to fight legislation, basically to help legislation, if passed, would help victims of clergy abuse seek justice. And that number astounded me. It was $10.6 million just yeah. in the northeastern U.S. That's crazy, especially for a religious organization.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.